Warning, today's story contains sexuality implied and death outright. It is not recommended for immature listeners of any age. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Please visit www.audiblepodcast.com castle for your free audiobook download. Podcastle, number 26, for September 23rd, 2008. Black Ribbon by Dawn Albright. Hello, this is Rachel Swirsky, Podcastle's editor. After Podcastle's episode 14, The Grand Cheat by Hilary Moon Murphy, we had quite a discussion in our forums about the role of prostitutes in fiction. Cerebralith wrote, How frickin' many escape artist stories are there that involve prostitutes? I mean, seriously, it seems like half. I mean, no disrespect to prostitutes, but do so many stories really need to have one? The week The Grand Cheat came out, there had been recent episodes about prostitutes from all three escape artists' podcasts. The editors of the other podcasts and I don't confer about what we're buying and putting out, and we don't always have time to keep up with each other's casts as they're released. So it's as much of a surprise to us as it is to you when all three podcasts put out material on the same subject. But collusion or not, a lot of prostitutes is a lot of prostitutes. Ragtime made a good point in the thread. Jackie Mason once objected to the sex scene in a movie and was told, But Jackie, sex is very important. Everyone does it. To which he replied, Everyone drinks soup. Where's the soup scene? It gets boring to see the same prostitute character over and over again. Prostitutes have a mythology built up around them, so when we think of them as a culture, I think sometimes we're more likely to think of the archetype of prostitute rather than real people who are sex workers. The prostitute archetype has a heart of gold. She's beautiful but sad, a flower soon to wilt. She appears briefly to be raped or victimized, To create cheap sympathy or condemn a villain. She provides counseling services along with sex, healing our hero with her bottomless sympathy and limpid eyes. The real sex workers I know have sad experiences, but they also to a person have really hilarious stories about working in the sex industry. Sex, let's face it, is pretty silly, especially when money is involved. Most importantly, the sex workers I know are fully grounded, interesting people and not archetypes or cliches. So is Podcastle going to stop running stories about sex workers? Heck no. But hopefully we'll be running the good ones. We want to avoid the one-dimensional plot tool prostitutes, just like we want to avoid the one-dimensional plot tool tavern owners, sly rogues, and evil sorcerers. Today's story is The Black Ribbon by Dawn Albright, a biostatistician living in the Boston area with her husband, two kids, a bearded dragon, and a milk snake. She blogs about the creative aspects of her life at dawnwitch.com. Black Ribbon first appeared in Marion Zimmer Bradley's fantasy magazine. It's read for us by Heather Welliver. Heather's newest appearance will be in Chasing the Bard at chasingthebard.com by Philippa Ballantyne. Heather Welliver is playing Anne Hathaway starting in Chapter 5. Chasing the Bard will also be available in iTunes. Heather Welliver is also a member of the band The Shillas, which you can find at myspace.com slash The Shillas. Links in this introduction are available on our website, podcastle.org. Enjoy the story. 
Black Ribbon by Don Albright. The woman measured three drops of poison into the milk and then poured the milk into the first baby's bottle. She picked up the first baby, the twin wearing the black ribbon. Hush, sweetheart, hush, she said, as she fed the baby girl the poisoned milk. The baby made a face at first, like she wanted to spit the cloth nipple out, but then she tasted the milk and drank everything in the bowl. The woman gave the baby one of the last kisses she would ever feel, and then she picked up the sister, the baby wearing the red ribbon, and fed her pure milk. The nurse wore no gloves, but in a few weeks she couldn't touch the black ribbon baby without protection. Karis in the red ribbon wore the gown she would wear in the sitting room that evening, when gentlemen started to arrive at the house. Karis in the black ribbon wore a mixture bizarre even for cosmopolitan parcel. Light leather breeches wrapped tight around her legs and tucked into her high boots, a riding shirt like the wild horse tribes to the east wore, silk gloves like a lady of the western courts, and a heavy veil that covered her face with only a thin slit to see through, like a southern barbarian. They covered every inch of her skin. I saw him last night, the Karis who was going to go downstairs said, after she had taught the other Karis the new dance step. He seemed nice. That was the signal that lessons were over for the night. The Karis in black stepped back and sat on her bed, and the Karis in red retreated to the other side of the room. The free sister preferred to run from the quarantined sister as soon as allowed, but the older woman liked for them to talk. When the time came, Karis in black had to be able to impersonate her sister, and she should know how she spoke. The plans had been made years before they were born. He seemed nice, Karis in black said. That's not what I'd heard. When have you heard anything? the other sister said. I'll see you tomorrow. Why did you pick me and not my sister? Karis and Black asked their nurse Marin one day after Karis and Red began to visit with the men in the sitting room. Karis could hear her sister downstairs laughing with all the other women. Was it because I was older? Did I look prettier or less pretty as a baby? What was it? Oh, maybe because you were older, I suppose. We didn't think about it. It had to be one of you. You were the one I picked up. She set the glass down by her bed, a mug filled with a murky wine with an olive tinge to it. She blew the girl a kiss and left the room, locking it after her. Karis picked up the mug and held it to her mouth. She heard the music from downstairs, and she heard the sounds of dancing. She knew that dance, too, one of the ones that her sister had taught her while wrapped in veils and gloves, although Karis was locked behind her heavy leather clothing. She listened for a moment more, and then she threw the mug down on the floor. It cracked and spilled the wine across the floor. The herbs made a pattern against the red tiles that looked almost pretty. Kara stared at it with her hand to her mouth. Her lips didn't touch her hand. At first she wanted to call her nurse to bring a second cup, but then she ran for rags to wipe up the mess and tried to think of a story to explain the broken mugs the next day. She wrapped the wine-soaked rags into a ball and put it in a bag where she placed her soiled napkins once a month for one of the women of the house to bury. No one would look to see that some were stained with wine and poison instead of blood. When she finished, she went to her window and looked out at the alley below. Her window faced the back, 
but she could see lights from windows on other streets, and she could listen to the music and imagine conversations and parties. Downstairs, a piper forced his pipe to play dance instead of the weird, mournful wails it wanted to sing. The dances came out dangerous, maddening. Karis put her arms around herself and shivered. She pulled off her embroidered shirt and rubbed her hands along her arms and breasts, wondering if other people's skin felt like her own. In the morning, the only signs that she hadn't taken her wine were the dead mouse on the floor of the room and the way her stomach lurched when she got out of bed. Her caretaker looked at the mouse with a surprised eye. She knew the signs of this poison, but then she thought of the supply of a herb in the kitchen and ignored it. She told Karis that she had a flu, accepted that she had knocked her glass off the table in the night, and left her breakfast. Karis wondered if her food might taste better without the leftover taste of poison in her mouth, but when she'd had three bites of it, the contents of her stomach came rushing back up. The chills and the headache and the nausea got worse through the day, so when Marin came back with a glass of murky olive wine, she could only raise her gloved hands feebly to try to keep the glass from her lips. The wine slipped down her throat, and with the familiar bitter taste she felt a touch of relief from her headache. The next morning she felt well again, and when her nightly potion came, she only held it in her hand for a few moments before she drank it all. The house did a thriving business with the Grandarian merchants who had occupied their country just as surely as other countries had been occupied with armies. Every year it did more business with the local populace, too, as the local men slowly forgot the times when the house had been a temple and the women in it priestesses. The men downstairs complained that the caris they knew wasn't available to the public. She had many admirers. The twins weren't the prettiest girls in the house, not at that house, although there were others where they would have been. Karis owed at least some of her popularity to her unavailability. When the men who spent their evenings talking to her and dancing with her discovered that they would have to take another girl upstairs to bed, it seemed only natural to them that there was a good reason for her to be too valuable for the common trade. They speculated that she was a royal bastard, with the light hair and fair coloring that many members of the royal house had inherited from past marriages of state with western kingdoms. Rumors of her royal birth spread. One day, the younger prince himself came to the house and danced with Karis. When the prince was refused Karis's company, the rumor was confirmed. What reason would the shrewd businesswoman have for angering the prince if Karis wasn't a close relative, even a sister? Who could they be saving Karis for? Soon after that, the Grandarian ambassador came to the house to see the royal bastard, and he took Karis upstairs. First, they had to make sure that sixteen years had been enough time to make the other Karis ready. They brought a stray dog up to her and told her to take off her gloves and stroke it. She did so gingerly, afraid that the starved-looking dog might bite her hand. "'Let it sniff you first, one of the women said, seeing her hesitation. The dog sniffed her hand and didn't find anything wrong with the scent. Its tongue snaked out to touch her hand as nervously as Karis had previously touched it. Karis jumped at its warmth. She hadn't thought that the dog she had seen from her window would be so warm. She brought her hand up to scratch its ears and enjoyed the feel of the fur. 
The dog leaned against her leg, and Karis dropped to the floor next to it to rub her hands through its coat and rub its belly when it rolled over to present it to her. She looked up to ask Marin if she could have some old meat or milk to give to the dog and saw their faces watching her, watching the dog. She pulled her hands away from the dog and stood up, alarmed. The dog followed her, pushing its nose against her leather pants. That's not enough to kill it, is it? You know it is, her sister said. Don't play innocent with us now. Karis tried to answer her, but couldn't. She couldn't think of anything that would make her sound innocent. She sat on the floor, away from the other women, while the dog started to whine and vomit. Later, Marin touched her hair gently with a thickly gloved hand. Karis expected words of comfort for the dog's death that she could refuse to hear, but instead the older woman only sighed. Your sister is no longer a virgin, darling. If you're going to finish this properly, then the ambassador can't be able to tell you apart by that difference. Kara said nothing, and after a few moments, the older woman continued. There's a young man downstairs. He's a drunkard, of good family, but he has nothing left but debts now. He owes every house in the district, including us, but he's handsome and pleasant. Kara still said nothing, and her nurse tried again. A man is harder to poison than a dog, Karis. Before we send you to the ambassador, we have to be sure. Finally, the older woman stood up and brushed her skirts off. I'll send him up. He's a good choice for you, dear. He's quite nice, and no one will miss him. Later, when they dragged him from her bed and threw his body into the river, Marin sat by Karis's bed with tears in her eyes, waiting for the girl to need comfort. Marin sat with her through the sunrise and through most of the morning, but Karis sat silently with her needles and yarn and didn't seem disturbed by anything but the smell of vomit that the cleaning hadn't entirely dispelled. When noon approached, she forced a smile at her caretaker and patted her hand with her glove. Marin smiled back and left her alone. Karis never told her that she felt the death of the dog much more than the death of the young man. The ambassador visited his Karis often. Marin often wondered out loud if it was the girl that he liked or the idea of screwing a member of the royal family. Marin had no respect for the ambassador. Karis in black often wondered how her sister felt about him, if she felt the same repugnance she had felt for the young man dumped into the river. The other girl had always been quiet when she visited her sister in quarantine, but now their visits looked and sounded like prayer hour. They both stared at the floor and said nothing. "'Are you ready for this?' Marin said. The nightly doses of wine were stronger now, and Marin avoided the touch of even Karis's clothes. Karis wore her gowns over and over now, with none of the servants coming to wash them. Karis had to dump her own chamber pot, pouring them out her window onto the back alley and hoping that no cat or dog would investigate. Karis wondered if she would kill the weeds between the stones and the road. Marin herself led Karis out of the building where she had been brought as a baby. She saw the lower rooms for the first time in her life, in passing as she tiptoed down the back stairway. She thought that the artwork and satins couldn't compare to what she had imagined, and felt sad at losing her image of the golds and reds she had long thought belonged there. The smell of garbage and human waste that was unpleasant in her room choked her in the alley. As she slipped out of the house, 
She could hear her sister laughing again, as she had heard her laugh so many nights. She followed Marin through the back alleys. No one bothered them. Karis didn't know that Marin never left the house without a weapon. This time, Karis was the weapon. Soon enough, they reached the ambassador's quarters. Marin stopped well away from the door. Karis turned to see tears in her eyes. Goodbye, my baby. The older woman bent forward impulsively, and brushing aside Karis's veil, she kissed the girl on her forehead and ran back down the alley. Marin, don't! she gasped, well after the woman was already out of sight. She stared down the alley, even started after her, but she didn't want to see her nurse vomiting in the streets. She stared back at the door. Behind it was the ambassador. Before she had gathered her wits, a servant opened the door. Had Myrne rung a bell? Karis couldn't remember. Lady Karis, the servant said. I wasn't told His Excellency had sent for you. In that moment, Karis appreciated the wisdom that had led the older sisters to name both twins by the same name. She was too befuddled to answer to a name that wasn't hers. He didn't. Will he see me? I... And then she didn't know what else to say. They had had a plan, briefed her on what to say, but it was all destroyed by Marin's last kiss. Something in her face caused the man to pull her inside. Are you well, lady? I'll tell His Excellency that you want him. Can I bring you something? Karis saw the look of kindness on his flat brown face, saw his hand steadying on her arm, and she became aware of the sweat coating her skin. Oh, gods, she thought, he's touching me. She jerked her arm away and regretted the look that flitted across his face, but she didn't regret it as much as the sweat that threatened to soak through her gown to his hand. I'll tell him, the man said with the kindness gone from his voice. Karis tried to remember what she was supposed to say. A plot, they had told her. She had come to warn him about a plot. She expected the servant to come back, to bring her to the ambassador. Instead, the ambassador came himself. Karis, what is this? Do you have good reason to come uninvited to my house? It's a festival day, she whispered. Back in the old times, before we worshipped the true God, this was a festival day in the old temple. The old women are dancing with knives, and they're killing doves in the back rooms. He drew in his breath. Did they frighten you, dear? She smiled at her hands. Maybe I was a little frightened. But there's going to be a great celebration tonight. I thought perhaps you might like to see it. She thought that the maker of laws would very much like to see an illegal ceremony, and the hungry look on his face answered her. He would. Come along, then, she said. Why do you wear gloves on such a hot night? It's for tonight. I'll take them off later. At the public house, she asked him to wait outside. I want to make sure they're done in the back room. They won't be happy to see you if they're still sacrificing. Inside the house, she slipped through the house she had lived in all her life and only seen once until she found the staircase that led to her attic. She found her sister brushing her hair in the mirror. Hello, sister, Kara said and took off her gloves. When her sister was dead, she traded dresses with her, a green silk and a western cut that left her arms and shoulders bare. 
She hadn't realized how hot she had been in her own enveloping shroud until she took it off. She brushed her hair with her sister's brush before she went downstairs to her ambassador. She had always been able to see that her twin was beautiful. But this was the first night that she felt beautiful herself. She went downstairs to where the ambassador waited, not bothering to hide herself from the other women of the house. She squeezed one woman's shoulder as she passed and kissed another's cheek. She passed through the common room where the music was starting and found the ambassador waiting for her impatiently. She held out one of her bare hands to him. The festival is just starting. Come on, I want to dance with everyone tonight. Our first podcastle giant, Richard Park's Moon Viewing at Shijo Bridge, a medieval Japanese detective story, met with a chorus of approval. On the blog, Travis said, Awesome! 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 And Dave, a.k.a. Nev the Deranged, demanded more Richard Parks. Audita Sum had some trouble keeping track of unfamiliar names, but liked how it all came together in the end. On the board, Roni said, Awesome! Without reservation, and went on to say, I don't know whether fantasy in general works better at a slightly higher word count, but this story was exactly as long as it needed to be, and it would have been a terrible shame if it had been rejected for breaching some self-imposed limit. Deflective said, I'd been wondering why we hadn't seen a solid, straightforward fantasy story before now. Now it makes sense. I'm glad we have a forum for them now. Dissenter Rain said, I found this story to be pretty boring. The first half hour or so was pretty good, but then it turned into dull court politics and the fantasy element completely disappeared. And there was some discussion of whether or not the story was sufficiently fantastic or if the fantastic elements were strictly necessary. Come on over to forum.escapeartist.info and tell us what you think about moon viewing at Shijo Bridge or any other story. Whether you loved or hated today's story, we hope you'll keep checking out more audio fiction. Audible.com is the Internet's leading provider of spoken audio entertainment, providing digital versions of tens of thousands of audiobooks that you can download to your personal computer or MP3 player. Listen any when, anywhere. Audible has over 40,000 titles representing every genre, including 1,000 science and technology books and 1,100 science fiction and fantasy titles. Audible has been kind enough to offer a free audiobook to Podcastle listeners who sign up at audiblepodcast.com castle today. If I were to pick up something from Audible today, I'd grab Heart's Hope by Orson Scott Card. I'm a fan of Ender's Game, of course, like everyone else, but I read Heart's Hope when I was young, and I don't remember much of it, except for an image of two Siamese twin goddesses, forever looking at each other. Again, that website is audiblepodcast.com castle. Sign up and get your free audiobook today. Podcastle is a production of Escape Artists Incorporated and is distributed on a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it, but don't change it or sell it. Our theme music is by Shiva in Exile. You can find them at magnatune.com. You can discuss this episode of Podcastle or nearly anything else on our forums. Just visit forum.escapeartists.info. And if you like science fiction or horror, be sure to visit our sister podcasts, Escape Pod and Pseudopod. And if you enjoyed this episode, tell a friend, or post to your blog about it, or consider donating via the PayPal link on our site. Louis McNeese said, You know the worst. Your wills are fickle, your values blurred. 
Your heart's impure and your past life a ruined church, but let your poison be your cure. 